Hello, and welcome back to the Feed the Ball Salon podcast. We've got a fun one for you today. This is the first time we've hosted two guests. So we have four people on the podcast, including me, Derek Duncan, and my host, the golf architect Jim Urbina, alongside golf design veterans Dave Axland and Tim Liddy. Tim Liddy, as you know, spent much of his career working for and then alongside Pete Dye. He was involved in the design and construction of many of Dye's projects in the Midwest and Southeast, and he's built a large portfolio of original work as well, some channeling the themes he learned working with Dye, and much of it his own creative vision that expresses a beautiful independent aesthetic. Dave Axland is something of a legend in the design business. He started working for Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw in the early 90s and was instrumental in creating Sandhills in Nebraska. From there, he took the lead in developing many, if not most, of Corn Crenshaw's courses, from Friars Head to Chichesse Creek to Talking Stick, Colorado Golf Club, and Lost Farm in Tasmania, among others. While still helping on Corn Crenshaw projects today, he's a partner in Whitman, Axland, and Cutton, a design firm he founded with Rod Whitman and Keith Cutton. They're busy designing and building Cabot Revelstoke in Canada and a new course in Bend, Oregon. If you'd like to hear more from Dave, you can check out Feed the Ball episode 50 when he joined me alongside Rod Whitman. And Tim Liddy joined me in 2018 in episode 19. Recently, Axland teamed with Liddy on the total remodel of Harrison Lake Club in Columbus, Indiana, which opens this summer. Liddy was the conceptual leader, while Dave shaped the course and added his own creative input. Now they're together in the salon to talk about that collaboration and how golf design in general has become more expansive and frankly more interesting once designers stop pushing egos and start working together. Together with Urbina, there's about a century's worth of design experience in this podcast, so sit back, sit up, and enjoy a shower of wisdom. Before we get there, please subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts, leave a star rating and a review of the show. I do this for you without ads. So I could use your help and support by you spreading the message of the podcast around to friends on social media and online, and be sure to follow me at Feed the Ball on Twitter and Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. We'll get to Tim Liddy and Dave Axon in just a moment, but first, Jim has something on his mind. You know, Derek, when these golf courses are built, when the golf courses are designed, when they're when they're laid out on the on the land that they're they're intended to be played upon there's always a talk about you know who is doing the work how is it being constructed and i take this quote from george thomas golf architecture in america if you don't mind i do not please go ahead and i quote george thomas no matter how good a man is for supervising a course he may not have the golfing knowledge or the artistic sense or the engineering education to carry out golf course construction. The golf architect should be made responsible for contours, for every detail in the construction of the course. His contract should be made so that he either supervises this work himself or supplies a competent foreman who is responsible in his absence. In this latter event, the architect should inspect the job a stated number of times. You may spend more money by using his men than by trying to get work done with yours at the time of the building. But eventually, you will save if you make entirely responsible and have is okay, especially before any seating is done, end quote. And so in that quote, Derek, it talks about having people around you. It, has, it talks about having people on site. It talks about an architect uh, being there to make those decisions. And what I've learned working for Pete Dye is that he was always there. 
And when he wasn't there, he had good design associates on site, good shapers on site. And that still carries out today. Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw, the guys that build golf courses today, they still supervise the work. They still are there. They still have competent, as as George Thomas says, competent people watching out, looking uh, looking out for those every every little contour that can be amplified or or, or uh, not used. So it's important to know that back then, George Thomas, Dallas McKenzie, uh, Flynn, Tillinghast, McDonald, Rayner, all of them, they knew that being there and building it on site, they didn't do a lot of them. Being there on site was the important part. And today, talking with Tim and Dave. I'll get that same sense. I'll ask him about that same idea. How important is it for them to be there? You know as well as I do, Derek, that that Dave being at the Sand Hills, the original, modern, classic, and Tim Liddy working with Pete Dye, being there all the time. I'm curious to see how their take is on that daily decision making uh, while on site and having somebody there to watch whether or not. Yeah, absolutely, and. You know, I think we're going to get into the details of that a little bit more, but just kind of to touch back on that quote and from George Thomas's perspective about the architect needing to be to oversee everything and at the same time needing, you know, to rely on people with his oversight to to get it done. It always strikes me when I am working on uh, our rankings or writing a, a piece about a historic course, how we say, you know, this course was designed in 1924 by uh, you know George Thomas, or is designed in, in an early year by Willie Park Jr. And the the accreditation for the golf course goes straight to the the top of the the pyramid. It goes right to the architect. And we really don't know much from that period when this book was written who all of these people are that these architects are relying on. We know a little bit with Thomas with working with with Billy Bell. We know uh, Donald Ross had you know different associates in different parts of the country, but we really have very little knowledge of the extent of who they were relying on and who was actually doing the feature work. I don't think, you know, um, Walter Irving was, was out there with, uh, you know, a steam shovel or, you know, a shovel, you know, making bunker edges. So, but somebody was doing that. And it's always interesting to me, you know, we just say, Oh, that's a Devereux Emmett, but we don't like who was actually building the golf course. We know so much more about that now. And as the decades went through, starting in the fifties and sixties, we had construction firms that were hired by architects to come in and complete the work and they would work closely with the architect. So as we've gone along, we know more about the process of building golf courses than we, than we we did 80 to 100 years ago. And then you get to this last 20 years and you have really small teams working closely together who know each other intimately. Like you had at Renaissance Golf working with, with Tom and those guys. And, and you mentioned Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw and their guys, Gil Hans. And in, in this podcast, we're going to talk to Tim Liddy and Dave Axland who have worked close together on a project. And it's just it's just a lot, we know a lot more about the process of how these creative endeavors come about and the, the interplay between the design and the construction side of it. And I know that, that, that Tim and Dave want to address that, but it's, it's, a, it's an evolving field and we know a lot more about it now than, than we ever had in the past when it was just one name on the banner of, the, of that golf course, as if it just magically occurred <laughs> off the, out of their pen. <laughs> well said. Uh, again, well said by Derek Duncan, uh, muttered around by Jim Urbina, <laughs> because I know that Robert Hunter was the key to McKenzie. Right. I know that Rayner was the key to McDonald. 
And without Rayner and Hunter, McKenzie and McDonald could be could be nobodies. And so those were the, one of the only two uh, back then that were strong in, in the in, in the uh, support of the design name McDonald and McKenzie. Uh, and you said it right. We watched the evolution come through from the from the golden age to post-war to today. And we start to find out more and more that it's not just one name, it's many names. And I, I today, when I do my design work, I have talented guys around me all the time. I learned it back with Pete Dye. You got to have talent around you, Derek. And when you have that talent around you, good things happen. And when I think about the best golf courses ever built, designed and built in the field with talented guys, I want to know more about those talented guys, Derek. And, and I, and I like the way you presented that. Yes. It was always that first name. That's what caught our attention. But I want to know more about the guys that were behind that first name. Yeah. In your knowledge and your research that you've done, have you come across people uh, in the 1920s who worked, say, for Alistair McKenzie, who were actually involved with doing the the labor work, the shaping, you know, uh, whether it's a, a machine or a, a scraper, making the contours, interpreting the plans of McKenzie and creating that that aesthetic that those courses are also known for do we know much do you know much about uh mckinsey in particular hunter and hunter's son were uh, responsible for a lot of those yes. golf courses but they yes. had their own people working for them too they had their own guys and 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 when you talk about uh, for example uh when you talk about mcdonald and rayner rayner i'm sure it's not spoken in word in press you know as well as I do, Derek, when the guy who's the architect's name, he doesn't generally want to spread. He doesn't want to dilute that architectural <laughs> name too much. He doesn't want to go down a list of guys that made him famous. <laughs> but when you read these old stories <laughs> and you find out that Fleming was an, an integral part of the work that McKenzie did on the, on the West coast. And he ends up going to Olympic club, you know, and, and, he, and, and you listen to Leeds, who was the superintendent at the Lido uh, for McDonald and Rayner. Uh, you have to dig deep to find these names, but they're there and, and you realize their importance, but they just don't get that headline. They, they don't get the marquee. And, the more and more I read of golden age architecture and history, the more and more I appreciate the people behind the people. And I, I someday, Derek, I would love you to write a story in, in golf digest about the other people. And I used to call it, it's the people stupid. It's the other people that make that name that bring that style of architecture out of the ground and, 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 Exactly right. There are those guys out there. You have to research them. Uh, you have to look for them, uh, but you find their names over and over. And Fleming was one of them. Um, and, and, and Leeds being the other at the Lido where they were integral part of the construction, the grassing, you know, somebody has got to grass this thing. Somebody has got to grow the grass. And, you know, there's a list of consultants that McKenzie used at Pasa Gempo. Uh, someday I'll get those to you. There's a list of consultants he used at Cal Berkeley for the soil, for the water, 
for the seed, for the research of all of those things that went into Pasa Temple. And Robert Hunter and Robert Hunter Jr. took that information and built Pasa Temple. They also used that information for Cypress Point. It's out there. You just got to look for it. And it's been fun reading it. There are a lot of backstories to these marquee names. Right. And it's a good reminder that even though so much time has passed and, and we might have a tendency to look at for whatever in whatever field, something that happened in the 19-teens or 20s as, as somewhat antiquated and, and old-fashioned and rudimentary, perhaps in some ways, but in other ways, things haven't changed. They did have all the consultants. They had specialists from all the different fields, from seed growers yeah. to people taking soil samples to you know some people surveying the land. Every They, they had a lot of help, outsourced a lot of things. And all yes. of those voices contribute, as we're going to talk to Tim and Dave about, into making a, a golf course great if as the that person at the top of the pyramid if you allow them to be involved and to do what they're what they're good at which wasn't always the case and i hope we can kind of touch on that a little bit too we are in a in a great age right now where a voice with skill and talent and passion can be heard perhaps in a way that wasn't possible 30 or 40 years ago agreed totally uh, derek agreed totally uh the tpc of sawgrass was built by a gentleman by the name of David Postelway. Right. He was the project manager and he had talented guys shaping for him. But without David Postelway uh, working for Pete Dye, the TPC of Sawgrass doesn't come out of the ground like it does. And you rarely hear about David Postelway. I work for David Postelway, so I know his involvement. It's really important to know that these guys were contributors and you're right. The, the, the allowing that contribution to be uh, brought forth and, and using it or not using it, whatever, it's important to the overall design and, and feel of the golf course. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And Tim worked with Pete Dye, as, as, as we said, and, uh, and Dave has really been, though, the one who is um, amongst the two of them who has lent support in so many ways to so many great projects um, for different designers uh, throughout the course of his career. So we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Tim. We'll talk about how they work together. We'll talk about how you utilize these same type of type of, of uh, skill sets and other people to, to do what you do. So I'm looking forward to it. These are two great guys. I've had them on both on the podcast before. I know you know them uh, really well. So I think this is going to be a fun conversation and, and we'll just kind of talk about collaboration and, and the way golf courses are built and how they turn out better. Always the more voices uh, feel free to participate in the process of creation. Agreed. And here's the question I'm going to surprise him with, Derek. I'm going to ask him, did you ever tell him, no, I'm not going to do that? <laughs> Ooh, <yeah. laughs> Hell no. <laughs> do it yourself. <laughs> I don't think so, but we'll find out. Okay. Here's Dave and Tim. This, this is always the fun part is seeing what what the uh, the office looks like. You got uh, racks and racks of, of books. Are those all golf books? Uh, no, there's all, there's all kinds of different subjects. But yes, anyway, a man of many interests. There's, there's some good stuff there. I bet. Yeah. Well, we're happy to have you guys on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining Jim and I. First of all. Have you, Tim, have you and Dave worked together before or is the Harrison Lake project the, the first time was Dave, were you over in, in uh, Scotland with, with Tim or was, I know Dave I was, was not, I was, I, I think I was invited Tim. Tim tells me he invited me. I don't <laughs> got remember lost in that. The mail. <laughs> he, he, he did invite Dan Proctor over there, but 
Now, Tim and I have worked, we went through it uh, yesterday. We've, we've worked on three projects together. Uh, most, uh, most recently, Harrison Lake in, uh, in Indiana. Uh, but before that, uh, Princess Anne in, on Virginia Beach. And then we, we worked on a golf uh, learning center in Florida. I don't know how long ago was that, Tim? Was that 10, 15 years ago? It has been, yes. And, um, you know, what makes the dynamics so much fun for us is that he's come up from the, you know, core Crenshaw side. I come up from the Pete Dye side. And, and putting our heads together on a, on a green complex or a, a golf hole is just so much fun for us to share, to share thoughts that way. We come from different, you know, we come, we come at it from different directions. And Dave, Jim, Jim here, Dave, Dave Axel. Hey, Jim. My favorite guy in the planet, on the planet. <laughs> yeah. Good to see you, Jim. We always talk on, by phone. We check in with each other every once in a while, but I got to ask this question. I never asked it on the phone. I always wanted to talk about the recent things, but I'm going to ask Tim the same question. Dave, you hung around some pretty cool guys, Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw. What is the biggest, biggest takeaway that you still use today from what Bill and Ben shared with you, whether it was at Sand Hills or thousands of hundreds, tens of other projects that you've done with Bill and Ben? What's the biggest takeaway that you still use today? I get asked that question, and I always wanted to ask you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was sitting here going, oh, my gosh, I've got to really work on this answer. I don't. The biggest takeaway is it just it came right to mind, and that is staying open-minded. And that is at the beginning of site study, when you're trying to determine the best way to travel a site for golf, uh, if you make a site visit after you've discussed a, a certain feature with, with somebody that's uh, building it in the field and it isn't quite what you thought, but yeah, they kind of have a 24 hour rule. You, you don't evaluate right away very much like Tim. Uh, and, and you, you just stay open-minded. And, and if you do that, good things will happen. Uh, you don't get locked in right away. Eventually you do, you've got to, you've got to do that. But I would say that's the biggest takeaway. Uh, you know, an open-minded attitude uh, throughout the process. And Tim, working with Pete, what's the biggest takeaway you have or uh, have and still use today? No question to me, it's teamwork. Um, sure, he was the leader, but, you know, there was, uh, there's, there's always a team in golf design, golf construction, from the guy doing, you know, digging the ditches to – to Pete. So, you know, it's, it's always a team effort. There's always collaboration and building a golf course. And of course, the big thing from Mr. Dye would be you build a great golf course, you don't design it. And, uh, and, and, and that goes into collaboration and teamwork. Because Derek, I always think about the times I work with Pete and the times I've hung around with Coor and Crenshaw and watched Dave and, and, and those guys do that work. I always think to myself, could Dave Axlin have worked with anybody else? Could Tim Liddy have worked with anybody else? Or was that the perfect marriage for both of them, Derek? 
you know, Tim, you came, you were, you were in landscape architecture and then you started to work with, with Pete was, was, I would imagine that the way that he worked was probably a, a bit different than maybe some of the other training, which might've been a little more rigid, uh, rigorous and, and plan oriented and detail oriented. What was that? I mean, was that an easy transition for you? No, it was a, it was a baby steps all the way. Um, and Pete was famous for giving you enough rope to hang yourself. So just walking a construction site instead of being in an architecture's office was, was quite a change. I can remember thinking, trying to help him. He would ask me questions about design and standing, you know, in the middle of a fairway, dozers going, excavators going, and I can't concentrate. And I finally thought of feeling like there was a pencil in my right hand and that, you know, I grew up drawing and thinking as I, you know, Dave, Dave Axland is thinking when he's on the dozer, I can see it. I can see him work. I can see his mind working. I was trained to work with a pencil in my hand. And so I would, I would pretend that there was a pencil in my right hand standing in the dirt on a fairway. And that got my right brain working immediately. So that was a, a big step for me, but being around all the construction equipment, I can remember those days early on. I was like, "Whoa, this! I can't think. There's too much noise out here." So, how are you? How, how are you at that now? When you're on a site, have you? Do you still do the pencil trick? <laughs> probably, probably, but don't think about it. And I'm very comfortable after 20 hundred yeah. years. You know, it's it's easy. Derek, I saw the 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 plan for uh, uh, the golf course Dave did with Bill and Ben in Arizona. I believe it's called Talking Stick, Dave. <laughs> yes. You saw, saw the, the, did you see the, the blob plan? Yeah, I saw the blob plan. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> Dave, you got to explain the blob plan because when I saw that, I was like, all right, who's going to figure this out? Yeah, well, uh, Ron Spain with Troon. Uh, had to hire somebody to figure that out and stake it in the field. Uh, his name was Pete Real, but the blob plan was basically instead of and Tim, you can help better explain this, but instead of following contour lines and adjusting them to show cuts, we would simply draw a, a an oval at a green site and say fill five feet. And then we go to the approach and say, cut two feet over a three-quarter acre area. Then we go to the landing area and say, fill two feet. And so it was, it was blobs of dirt, as simple as that, just placed out there. And then the dozer would, would take over. And so all 36 holes were, were, <laughs> were developed that way as far as the cut-to-fill plan is concerned. And uh, I remember the contractor looking at it. And Jim, and to make your point, going, you know, what on earth is this? And 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 so we, uh, Ron to Spain knew that we needed a little help there. Uh, so he, he did get a guy to do what they call contour staking, and somehow it all worked out exactly the same. It was just staked according to contour lines, as opposed to just put five feet of dirt out here. And so that was it. And then I remember we came up short. Oh, about 75,000 cubic yards when the when the balancing was done between cuts and fills. And so they just lowered the idea six inches. And there you go. There's your plan. And Derek, the cool thing about the blob plan is that it gets the material that you need there. And then you tie in the contours with an excavator or a dozer. 
But people don't know that. They just assume that this was all uh, was was uh, carefully thought out. And Tim knows as well as anybody that Pete was constantly scratching in the dirt and, and Tim had to connect those contours that Pete was scratching in the dirt. Pete would always say, why do I need drawings when I'm on the site every day? So, <laughs> Yeah, and, and the story behind Talking Stick, by the way, is that the, there are virtually no contours on that site. So there was, there was, you know, very few lines to work off of. And that's also not the way that, that Corn Crenshaw and the team works. They, they don't utilize detailed uh, construction plans and balance out cuts and fields the way that uh, other firms do. So Talking Stick, Dave, I know you, that was a very uh, interesting project to work on just for, the, for those reasons alone. It was. It, was, it may have been my first project with Coor and Crenshaw other than some renovation work uh, at Lakewood or Hot Springs Country Club. And I, you know, I was way, I was, you know, Coor loaded Pete probably loved, you know, Tim just said it, Pete may have enjoyed giving you just enough rope to hang yourself with. I think Coor and Amanda certain degree probably enjoyed the pressure they put me under. You know, I'm out there and they're all going, well, just, you know, just go out there and build it. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, there, there's no golf out here, you know, and I, <laughs> you know, and it all worked out, but, uh, it was a, it was a great how'd first that, job. How'd that make you feel? <laughs> You've got the whole project <laughs> resting on your shoulders. Exactly. There was uh, I think I smoked at that time. <laughs> uh, or if not, you started. Or I started. Yeah. That, uh, but no, I, I remember that job real well. I, I, I go back there and study that work. I, Rod Whitman and I were out there two weeks ago hmm. looking at the second hole on the North course. It doesn't, it, it's eight acres of fairway with OB on the left and two right greenside bunkers with a green that tilts right to left. So you can, it's a par five. You can play out to the right all day long, but eventually you've got to play left and contend with the OB. And I've heard it described as the worst hole in golf and the best hole in golf. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you've hit on something when you can get those two, <laughs> those yeah. polar, polar opinions. <laughs> exactly. Oh uh, no, we had, we had a great time with that one, but, uh, I, I could keep going on and on, but I'm sure there's better things yeah, to talk well, about. Well, one of the things that strikes me is is thinking of Tim Liddy and Dave Axon working together is the, di the different backgrounds you come from. I, we just said that you know, Tim comes from a, a more of a detail-oriented landscape architecture background, and then working for Pete, who was involved in uh, at least the end product, was, was very uh, meticulously kind of put together and had Pete's sense of aesthetic on top of it as well as all the the brilliant strategies that he incorporated but it was very distinctive shaped product and the core crenshaw courses dave the most of them that you came up leading the construction on are the opposite in many ways at least aesthetically from that from that die objective of kind of creating a landscape your your method and and goal was always to preserve the landscape as much as possible and to have fewer uh, horizontal and linear lines and things that looked more kind of carved out and natural and, and weathered. Um, so when you come to work together, is there some sort of kind of balancing act that you have to achieve when you have Tim's uh, design ideas and concepts and then Dave, you're asked to implement them or, you know, talk about how you found that, that meeting, that middle ground to meet on. It, it, it's, it was the perfect collaboration, Derek. And, and Tim and I did, go go through our the business from different directions in other words i started 
my background, my formal education was in turf grass management as an agronomist. And then I came along and I started grading fairways. I, I'd been an assistant superintendent. So I started grading fairways. And then to my surprise, I, I had an artistic side to me that, that came out. And so it was a very pleasant surprise. And, and pretty soon you're building bunkers, building greens, and then you're managing projects in that way. And, and what worked so well with, with Tim is he, he started in the drawing room for lack of a better phrase. It's probably not, he'll better explain how he started, but, and so we have a tremendous mutual respect for the individual skill sets. When I go to a, when I go out to the, you know, it, it is all about team, like Tim said. And when I go out there and represent team, uh, or represent Tim as, as part of his, his team, the collaboration is is terrific. I I know that the 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 design thoughts are have have been put in place, and ownership and contractor and superintendent are all on the same page, and and we just get to go. I just get to go out there and have fun building golf. <laughs> so it's fantastic. Uh, so we have overlapping skill sets there, and I I know that. For example, I my strength wouldn't necessarily be in taking a look at 400 acres and doing what Tim did at Harrison Lake and reversing six of the holes, mm-hmm. uh, whereas his strength might not be going out there and just roughing in a bunker. Uh, but we we have a tremendous amount of respect for how each of us can what we bring to the table makes the product better in collaboration. We just well put, well put, yeah. Tim, when you're deciding, you know, to build a team on a project and, and you've, you've had new builds and you've done renovations and you, you've, you've collaborated with, with, with Pete Dye and across the spectrum of, of your design experience, do you go into a project thinking, I want Dave Axland on this one or I want somebody else on this one? How does that process of building that team work for you? Well, I have clients that want a Pete Dye project and I have clients that want a Tim Liddy project. And how do those differ? Well, Tim Liddy project, I'm going to reach out to Dave and see his schedule because Tim Liddy wants to be different than Pete Dye. And we have so much fun together at the same time. And what, and also really the overriding issue is what's best for the client? What is the client going to appreciate bringing Dave Axlin in after he's hired Tim Liddy? Or is Dave Axlin not a good fit for, for that client? So it takes a, you know, it takes that kind of client um, where some, you know, some of my clients want to Pete Dye golf course. I'm not going to waste Dave Axlin's time on, on doing, you know, Pete Dye waste bunkers. So that's part of it. Um, but the overriding thing, you know, what makes it so special for me, and I know it's for Dave too, is we don't do this very often. Um, you know, we've done a couple projects over a decade you know, we might do one more together. I don't know, but he's busy with, you know, with his other companies and, and I'm busy. I'm always getting the die um, uh, questions. So I think when we're together, it's time for Dave to be Dave and Tim to be Tim together. Um, it reminds me of when I went to see Castle Stewart and I stopped in to see Mark Parsonen. And Mark was more excited than I was. And I couldn't, I go, what's going on here? And finally, Mark said, 
Tim, there are so many, there are so few people that can talk this vocabulary, can talk the, that, and have the passion. And he, he was very sweet to me. He gave me the great tour. And that's how Dave and I are. You know, we're kids in a candy store uh, and doing what we think that is best for the client. Mm-hmm. Jim, I'd ask you the same question. When you're building out a team, do you enter it with, uh, you know, what's your process and, and what are you trying to get out of it? Because I know, and we've had discussions in the past about, you know, a team is a very fragile thing. When it's working well, you're going to get, you could produce something that's outstanding. But if it's not working well, it can have a you know, deleterious effect that ripples through the whole project. So what is the balance between finding the right people and, and you know, getting, the, getting them all in sight at the same time? Well, you, first of all, you have to allow them to be creative. Allow shapers to be creative, allow associates to be creative, because their input has to be valued. Dave said that from the beginning. Uh, I know Tim feels that the same way working with with Dave. But for me, it's understanding the 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 goals at, at hand. Is it going to restore a golden age design, or is it going to be a new design build? Uh, some guys are very good at, at creating a style of bunker that looks like it was carved out of the, of, out of nature. And some guys are very good at creating very structured mechanical looking bunkers, uh, Seth Rayner design, McDonald and Rayner, uh, very, some, some shapers, some associates can see the three dimensional artwork of, of McKenzie and, and uh, Tillinghast and others, you know, they just want to just let them shape and build and come back and take a look at it and edit it. So everybody's different. Some are creative and some just want you to tell them how to build it and then come back and, 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 and edit it. And so the team is important. Dave has said that. Tim has said that. What I find interesting is that Dave has been doing quality jobs for years and years and years. And Tim Liddy has been doing quality work for years and years and years. How did they put the egos aside and let each one of them do what they do and have this 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 product that they're both proud of. That's the hard part that that I can't imagine uh, being around. And next time they do something together, I just want to listen in because putting egos aside, that's tough. It's tough. You, you always know, but, think you're the best idea. But there is a great tradition of this in golf course architecture. I mean, you got to look at McKenzie and Maxwell and Hunter and. Uh, there's just a great tradition. I'm sure, Jim, you could help me with it. Look, look at the history of golf course architecture and how, you know, architects come together and work together to produce, you know, some of the best golf courses in the world. But, Tim, were they, were they going at it <laughs> left and right? Were they duking it McKinsey's, out? McKinsey's not really known for being egoless. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean right. were they duking it out? Or, or does Dave and Tim have this love affair, no disrespect, have this uh, this uh, this uh, coexistence that the product is really the most important part, and I could check my ego at the door. I think checking the ego at the door is a big part of it, and and some guys can, and some guys cannot. Uh, no question. And that I think I think something that really helps Tim, and, and because we, you know, I've tried to I you know I'll, I'll put on the designer hat quite a bit, and I just for me. It's such hard. What we do is hard work. I mean, it, you know, I'll, I'll get 
somebody will say, I want to be a golf course designer. And I'll say, no, you don't, <laughs> you know, fix something else. <laughs> I mean, I, the respect level, once you've been through the battle, when it comes to the communications, the presentations, the, the things that happen even before you start thinking about golf and then, and then the construction and the just, it, it just takes a team. There's no, there's no I or me. If you, if you try to do it all, you, I mean, we just have a, a very, I have a, such a healthy respect for how hard this work is and who can help, help it get better and make life easier when you're out there designing and building golf. That's, and so it's not hard to check the ego at the door. If you, if you've got a teammate that's helping things get better and making things easier. Dave, did you go through a period in your career when you had a harder time putting your ego aside than others? Was that something you had to learn? Good question. Uh, yeah, I, I think I was, I had plenty of, probably plenty of ego when I was younger. And this, this business will, for me anyway, uh, it, you're, you're only as good as your last job. It, and I, I don't know about other people, but I'm never quite sure I can make the most of a 10,000 square foot area for a bunker system. I, I'll go into it without, you know, the preconceived notion. Each one is a new adventure and challenge and, and failure is an option unless you're on your game. And I don't know if that answers the question, but I, for, for myself I, and uh, working with Tim or, or others, uh, you're first and foremost, you, you start out, you're a great listener and then you study the ground and you try to pick up anything that mother nature has given you as a, as a guy. And, and then you get through with both of those initial steps and then you go to work and you, and you hope something good happens. Uh, and it's hard and, and there is uncertainty. I, I'll, I've never gone into a spot and said, oh, this is just going to be a piece of cake. You know, <laughs> it's, it's hard work. <laughs> and, and I love it. Is that, yeah. a, is that a prerequisite to, to be in this business is to have to have that natural humility where you're not sure that you can do what you've been asked to do and have to face that every day. It seems like that, does that, does that wear on you after a while? I mean, you've been doing this as long as anybody and at the highest level as anybody. And for people who are listening to this, to hear you say that, that even now when you go out, you have that doubt whether you can pull it all together. I can't, I can't imagine how, how, you know, how you deal with that. At your level, no, it's it's a it's a good question. It's you know the you set a high you know I can be I think all of us, Jim included, probably we're our own our we're our own worst critics, and we we set a really high bar for ourselves, and and for what fits our eye and and achieving the subtleties, whether it, once you get through the four foot stuff and you get into the, the four inch stuff, the, the detail that's required for you to say, this is accepted. I'm proud of this. And it represents not only what I think is best for that particular site, but what is best for what Tim and I have talked about uh, insofar as balancing out the 18 holes. And it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's humbling. 
And, and that's what's so much fun about it. it it's every, you, you know, you take your lunch to work every day and you've, you've got to give it 100 uh, percent because you're only as good as your last golf course or or your last effort in my book. And Derek, and, you have to imagine that Tim, when he looks at a drawing in totality, all 18 holes, you know, he's looking at the balance between the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And Dave is looking at four feet to four inches. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you want to talk about contrasting uh, uh, entries into the architecture of golf. Tim is, is the entrance road and, and the location of the clubhouse and the scorecard. And, and not that Dave doesn't think about that, but he's attaching, attacking each individual complex. And Tim is, is Tim, correct me if I'm wrong. Big picture, little picture, or is it more than that? In various degrees, but you're right on. I mean, obviously, I've thought of the golf hole in general, and I've thought of the green complex in general. But, my, you know, when I have Dave Axel on a project, I'm going to say, Dave, here's the foundation that I'm giving you. You know, take it and run. And so you're exactly right, Jim. It's those four inches, those three inches, those nuances that make it so special. You know, that, that's the word I always see is the nuance. And again, some clients want that. They get that. And some clients, you know, uh, don't. So, Derek, you ever read in any architectural book about four inches and four feet? <laughs> No, but I know that, you know, like that's what, that's what builders do. They take the big blueprint. It's beautiful, whatever that's a house or a bridge or a golf course, and it looks gorgeous on paper. And then the, the true builder is thinking, how am I going to make that work? And it's some small little, little piece of the ground or part of the design that, that nobody else notices. And they realize the window's in the wrong spot and they got to <laughs> change the window. Yeah. I'm going to make these two eaves intersect. And it really spoils me because I've got another architect on the site, you know, that it's, it, that's very selfish and, and it spoils me, but it's, it's too much fun. You know, and, but go ahead. It is the, it's, it is the on-site guys. It is the, it is the people that are there helping uh, create it. And Dave has that same thing with his guys. You know, Dave comes to, to, to Prairie Dunes or Dave goes to a wild horse in Gothenburg, Nebraska. And he's got his ideas and Dan Proctor and him are working. And it's like, everybody's got these ideas and yet somebody's got to put them in the ground. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what's so interesting, what's so rewarding about working with, with Tim. Uh, and it has to do with, I have so much gratitude and I've been so fortunate in experiencing so many different styles of, of, of uh, greens construction, for example, whether they be uh, steep bank, uh, more of an East Coast type look at East Hampton Golf Club around the greens or your crowned off Ross greens or just any number of styles of uh, I've, I've had that great experience of, of working with Kerr and Crenshaw on different and different styles. And so when I, when I go to work with Tim, that he gives me the opportunity to put, put that to work. And it's so rewarding. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll look at something. I go, Hey, how about a, you know, how about 
tall grass back here or how about uh steep bank tall grass or quieter contours or, or whatever and you and you can just it's so rewarding to put to work what you've learned i'm 60 years old and i've been doing it for a long time and it's it's just terrific to work with tim on these projects yeah and dave i know that you went a long time in the middle of your career where you weren't doing that type of thing you were asked on projects to kind of be responsible for the big picture and to get all the parts moving and to be the conductor. And uh, you weren't spending time on the machinery and getting to tap into that creative side of you. So that must working with Tim on, on projects like, like you, we've spoken about and some of the work that you're doing now, obviously with, with Rod Whitman and Keith Cutton on, on your projects and the other, your consulting work, it must be very rewarding for you to, to be able to do both sides of it now. And, but also specifically to, take all that knowledge that you've accrued over the years and all of your experience in building different types of greens and being able to actually put it in the ground and shape it with your own four wheels, if you will. Yeah. Well said. Yes. And I think earlier, I think Jim had mentioned something about Tim and his match matching up well with Pete Dye and, and the same thing with myself and, and my upbringing with Kerr and Crenshaw. And, you know, it, at, at that time, I was the right guy in the right place for the team. We, we'd never used a golf course contractor until the Colorado Golf Club. We, we'd gone, you know, at Friars Head, I remember going out there for two weeks and talking to local superintendents and then, you know, discussing other things and coming up with a, some sort of a game plan. And we, we needed it at that time, and that's where, you know, I, Luckily, I, I have I have you know an organ an organized type of thought process too, as well as the artistic side. And so, for Kerr and Crenshaw, it was a good fit. The like building a team out on the north shore of Long Island to build a golf course, or at East Hampton Golf Club, or you know Sand Hills, or just so many of them were just. Uh, let's 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 figure out how to build golf here. <laughs> and so you come into it with a real fresh mindset uh, because it was always said, well, what kind of a golf course are we going to build out here? Well, this 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 looks like steep bank uh, rainer greens at Chichesse Creek Club, for example. Or what are we going to do over here? Well, these could be more Ross type greens or or anything else. So. Once again, it goes back to being open-minded too, as as we started the our podcast here, and that's what I've, I've just been really fortunate with, and and now I can apply it and help others. Helping others is so rewarding. Hey, Derek, I got to ask this question to Tim, Liddy, and Dave both. I'll start with Tim, and Tim, you could defer to Dave if you'd like. Tim, did you ever think I'm going to tell Dave no? on this on this idea <laughs> well that's that's a great point that's a great point because even though we come at a project from different views you know uh i've been trained in architecture school what's called the art of the critique of you put your work out there and and everyone critiques it and and you don't take it personally you move you take the best from that and you move on and dave Axelin and I have had many, many 
critiques of what he's doing, what I'm doing, how this whole's fitting. We're not taking it personal. We're trying to do, again, what's best for this golf course, for this client. So, again, does it go back to the egos a little bit? Probably does. But we both understand it's, it's, uh, we're going through a critique process. We're not, it's not personal. Um, that's, how I, that's how I see it. Um, Dave, how, what, what do you think? Uh, same thoughts. And, and even further along those lines, I, I don't like going it alone. I like working with others, working with Tim and, and bouncing ideas back and forth. You know, I may have a thought. And yet I, I like to run it by Tim, you know, Hey, you know, I, I saw this somewhere else, Tim. And, you know, if we crowned off this part of this green and favored that angle of attack by challenging it with a, a bunker or a contour or, or something, you know, what do you think? Uh, I, I like that. that. That's how I'm built. I'm a, I'm a, so there's not a lot of, I guess maybe I've been lucky that way too. I, I mean, we all have an ego, and I know one thing I've learned is you got to please yourself first because there's so many different directions you can go when you're developing a routing or developing golf course features. And pretty soon, you ultimately, you just have to be happy with your work. And yet, when I work with Tim, there's – Tim said no before. He said, you know, I don't really like that one, Dave. What, what do you think about this? And then with the back and forth, I enjoy very much. Very, very, very much. I wouldn't do it any other way. So you don't see it as a negative. You see it as a positive. Absolutely. Usually usually people think of no as a negative. No, I, I, I appreciate candor. (laughs) We have, we have no time for white noise on a job. You say what you think and you mean what you say. (laughs) Another lesson probably from Pete died down to all of us is that, I am there. You know, I'm not in an office and I'm visiting once every three weeks. I'm standing there. You know, I might be on the other part of the site, but, you know, we're there. We're there working on on the project. You know, just it's important to be there. I mean, that's a that's a fundamental uh, Pete Dye rule that has taught all of us. And that makes hearing no a lot easier. When the when the person that you know in charge of everything, the architect, the guys whose name's on the course, when he's there all the time doing the work on site, just as everybody else is who's under his employ, uh, that makes it easier to hear criticism because you know he's invested. He knows he you understand what the process was. You know, Pete probably taught that to Bill Corr. Bill Corr has you know forwarded on to these gentlemen, and I've learned it from Mister Die as well. All I ever heard was hold the phone. That was Pete's way of saying no, hold the phone. So shut up and listen. And uh, with all due respect and love and and caring, because he liked shapers, he liked them being around, but it was always hold the phone, hold the phone, hold the phone. phone. Another good, good tip for uh, our lead architects is develop a good euphemism for saying no. (laughs) Softens the blow. A lot of the best stuff that happens is are random acts out there that that I, I can't tell you how many features that exist on golf courses today were random acts of imperfection that well, hey, why did that happen over there? That looks pretty good. Well, I was just stockpiling topsoil. We'll leave it. <laughs> you know, or and and you don't get that if you're not on site. Uh 
it's so important to be on site and, and experience everything that's happening and take advantage of the things that are not planned. You know, that's a good point. And I think that the quality of golf design, especially at the high end, has been so so, so significant the last 25 years. And one of the things that I think is, and we've this is just kind of going back to these themes we've been talking about, is the, the sense of collaboration, the sense of building a good team, the, the, of being open-minded, Dave, is, is that that's a hallmark for this era of golf design, at least amongst the best firms and the best practitioners, is building the team taking your time, looking at the product, being open to uh, mistakes, uh, accidents, happy accidents. Whereas in, in previous generations, you didn't get that. The majority of golf design was uh, more bureaucratic. You had the the lead architect who had his a team of associates and he would make the plans and pass them down and then those would get passed to a contractor and somebody would show up once every you know month, two months, whatever. They, he would take a look real quick around the site, say, let's move this, change this, do this. But nobody was there, or at least they weren't empowered to be able to say, you know, like, let's soften this uh, entry into this green, or let's work on this shoulder, this bunker, or let's expand these out. And what, what Dave, you've done in, throughout the course of your career, and, 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 and Tim does it now, and maybe, and I'm sure with Pete as well, is you, you're there on site. You take your time. Everybody has a chance to breathe and to look at it. You know, it's the old thing, like being with Bill Coor, it's always like, let's take a walk. Let's go look at it. Don't make a decisions. We're just going to go take a look. And it's, it's that slowness that enables the details to come out in a, in a golf design and the end product. I think you feel it. I think that golfers have come to the point where they sense that slow cooking makes a big difference in the outcome of a, of a course versus that I'm coming in, here's the, here's the job, here's the plans, stamp it, let's move on to the next one. And when there is a, a, a part of that, though, where, and when Dave talks about tension and anxiety, it's the old production versus the art side. You know, we're trying to produce the best art we can, but there's always pressure for production. You know, the irrigation crew is back here. The, the drainage crew is coming. So, um, you know, it's especially at, I would say, my, you know, mid-level golf courses, productivity is, is always a anxiety piece, always. Wouldn't you agree, Dave? I would, Tim, no question. There's always that pressure. Uh, and I was thinking about what Derek just said, and the same holds true when you and I are working together, we've, you've never handed me a set of plans and, and I never experienced that in my training. We all, we all have been trained to think and act a certain way. My training was through Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw initially and books that were written a hundred years ago uh, or 80 years ago. And all the stuff in between, I, I missed that, the, you know, big rolls of plans and, and all those things. We had a pretty good roll of plans, a talking stick, I must admit, the blob plans, <laughs> but uh, which I could understand because I knew how they started. But I never, I never, Tim and I, when we work, it's all visual and just communications, good listening, knowing that through collaboration, the work gets better. And there you go. Hey, Derek, 
I got to I got to ask another question as I listen to Dave and, and Tim talk. And I know it goes back to history and history is important to me. I'll ask Dave first and ask Tim after that. Dave, when you're out there and you're and you're 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 debating between that four feet and that four inches. How many times do you hear Bill Coor talking to you as you're debating that or have you moved past that in, when you're working with Tim? I would say we get uh, good leadership, or I get good leadership with from from Tim and Bill or Ben or others. In when you're in that four foot range, in other words, well, well things will be balanced out. Do we want a high green here or a low green? Are we repeating ourselves? Should it run? with the line of play or against it or side to side, you know, so the, the answer is, yeah, when I'm out there, the, I know there's been a lot of thought put into the, the big, big picture, but I, I study that too. You know, I, I just can't help myself, but like in, when Tim and you know, there is role playing and when Tim and I collaborate, I will get, I'll get into the more finer details uh, versus the, the the bigger stuff. Not that we don't talk about big stuff, but if you have to have a little separation, I feel like I do my best work for the team when Tim gives me a, a great setup, which which always which usually happens. Sometimes we'll go to a spot and say, "Well, we don't have a clue here. What are we doing? <laughs> Let's go. Uh, we need a we need a low green here and and." And then I'm able to draw on these wonderful experiences and, and run run some of them by Tim as, as he does for me. And then through that collaboration, we get pretty close uh, through good communications uh, to where I, I don't I don't on, working with Tim. I don't have to think about is this green going to be eight feet in the air or, or eight inches in the air? You know, we're, the target's smaller. Perfect. And then Tim, do you think does Pete? Do you feel Pete on your shoulder when you're walking sites, thinking, "What would Pete do here?" You know, every every site, every golf course, every green complex is different. Some, uh, you know, as Dave and I have worked, some I've said, and this is what Pete and I would say: "Give me something to look at." You know, uh, where other green sites you would know, you know, I know exactly what fits here. You know, I can see this. This is what I want built. And there's everything in between. But uh, Pete would, you know, so that's how we learned is, okay, this is what Pete wants here. This other place is like, uh, let's, get, let's give him something different to look at, see if he can make it look good. Um, and we had a lot of fun doing that because he would, he would uh, kid us quite a bit. And Dave and I are the same way. Again, with Dave, I might say, uh, this is what I see here. I see, you know, not you know, Rodan, or I see a Bayritz, or I see whatever. And he'll say, okay, I got it. Um, and then there's other green sites. I, I think of the third green at Harrison Lake where I just said, you know, throw, do what you want to do here, and we'll look at it. And he did a beautiful green. So, and there's all in between, you know. Anyway, we started with this, but it's kind of developing into something else but it looks better. So it's a painter in the paintbrush. It's a guy writing a paragraph and you're editing that paragraph. You know, it's, it's the same 
it's the same piece of art. It's the same process in all of art. When you're working on a, a project with someone who isn't as accomplished or, or perhaps as you know experienced or as ta- even just as talented, frankly, as, as Dave, will you build a more comprehensive set of plans? And how often would you will you use sketches? You're a great artist. Will you use that to convey your ideas? I'm more of if I don't have someone like Dave, it's more pressure on me. So I have to. I, I'm there. I'm I'm putting pin flags in like crazy. I'm not getting on the dozer anymore, but I'm I'm standing there telling him to do that. So it's it's more pressure for me, but uh, that's okay too. That's fun. That's not work. That's fun as well. Um, so. Uh, I usually just do mass X, X drawings, um, a little more sophisticated than Dave's blob drawings, but, um, <laughs> but it's sculptural, you know, from there, it's a piece of sculpture. So I think you're wasting your time doing drawings to that degree. You got to have your drainage in the right spots, but it's, it's visual, it's sculptural, you know, six inches is a big deal when you're standing in a fairway looking at something vertically. Six inches can block something or cannot block something. So how do you see that on a piece of paper? Mm-hmm. You see, Derek, I could talk to these guys forever because it's about the field work and the little nuances that you can't see in a scorecard that says design by. There's so many working parts to all of this and all of the things that go in with these Daily design decisions. Every day from sunup to sundown, decisions are made on the design. And yet you'll never read about that, Derek. Never read about it. You know, speaking of speaking of of, of authorship of, of golf courses, you know, everybody that's in your line of work, all three of you, learned from somebody. You learned from other people, whether it's Pete Dye or Bill Coor or or somebody else. And I'll start with you, Tim. I'm, I'm wondering, like, at what point, especially with Pete Dye, because he was, I mean, he was so specific in what he was doing. He was one of the, you know, three or four most singularly creative, defining architects uh, in the history of the profession. So what you came up under that, learning that style or whatever you want to call how he, you know, one side is how he built it. The other side is how the holes turn out. At what point, though, in that process of your education, do you start to decouple your own views from your mentor, from the person that, that teaches you? Now, I think when Dave answers this question, it's going to be a little different because so much of, of Bill Coors way that he builds golf courses and how they turn out is about the process itself. Whereas that's maybe not quite as true with, with, you know, a, a Fazio or a Nicholas or a die or something. But at what point, Tim, do you, in your progression, did you say, okay, I can do this, what I've learned, but here's my ideas and here's what I want to do. And, and how often have you gotten to that point where you can express that? I'm getting there. Um, the lesson from Pete Dye though, is really what's so great uh, and fantastic about what he did is, you know, he, over a period of decades, he developed, you know, a vocabulary for golf course architecture. I mean, uh, TPC at Sawgrass, that is a vocabulary that, it took him his lifetime to develop, you know, the straightness, the, the left to right, right to left, all of that great, you know, the, the green sites, all of that is just, uh, I, you know, I, I witnessed how he went through that process. And then he got to a point where I really like this. I'm not going to do anything different 
You know, a lot of people said it became formulaic, but he just liked it. You know, I mean, he just really loved how he was laying out the golf hole. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, and so does Tim Liddy get that kind of opportunity? Probably not. I'll get, I'll get little snippets here and there. Like, uh, you know, the, uh, Harrison Lake in Columbus. Um, and I think if you, when you see it, which I'm going to make you come and see it, uh, you'll go, okay, I, I see some of Dave here. I see some of Tim here. Um, you'll see it, but it's, it's always an evolution. I, I think though that Mr. Die, he, he got to a point where he just really liked his vocabulary and I like it too. I mean, I think we all do. And I think Dave and I still like to are more searching. I, I would guess a bit. D- Dave, I'd love, I'd love to hear your, you know, as you get more and more in, into uh, original design to, to a level that maybe is, you didn't, you know, obviously you were a part of the team and you were involved in the creative process, but you know, getting new projects that you're working on now and you're the architect, you get to put you sit in that seat. Do you find yourself saying, as we touched on a minute ago, like here's some things that I wanted to do or, or is the, is it so based in process that the Bill Coor influence is, is always going to be there to some level? Certainly that influence will always be there to some level. Uh, but, but like out in Bend, Oregon now uh, with my whack teammates, we're, Doing a golf course and whack <laughs> Whitman actually cutting whack. We love the name. I, <laughs> it, it, yeah, the Jim, whack Jim thought team. you meant something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, yeah, I'll, I, I got you, Tim. Jim. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, let me see. You threw me off my game there. What was the question again? <laughs> I don't no, know, but. But we, we, you know, we had to, all teasing aside, we had to, for example, for a website or for a communication aid or, or something, we needed to come up with 18 whole concepts. And, and so we did. And not, you know, at least half of them were probably altered throughout the construction process and so we updated that but uh just fundamentals are you know within a routing there's usually three to four maybe five holes that could become anything that they could be just left to right right to left uh whatever and so a lot of times you you save those holes for the end or as long as you can until you decide what you don't have. And then you'll put what you don't have on that canvas. Um, that's, you know, those are all good tools. Uh, I know that like with, with current Crenshaw, every job was treated differently when it came to the questions, you know, what kind of greens are we going to build here? You know, it's not each, each, you know, one of the, I don't know what people say about Sandhills Golf Club in detail, but the thing that I don't hear too much of, and, and yet that maybe because I just don't listen to the right people, is the variety within the greens. The greens, the greens at Sandhills Golf Club, you know, there were many directions you could go on some of them, and 
whether it's a green like three with long running slopes left or right, feeding it down the hill or a perched up green uh, and built into the side of a dune like four. Uh, and we were, you know, they rely on history too. The fourth green at Sand Hills is inspired by the fifth green at Prairie Dunes. So I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but we, we respect and study the work that's gone before us to, you know, apply proven principles to different situations. That's a big part of it. And, and just the ongoing work being on site allows you to feel like you've achieved your goal. If your goal is to make the most of a piece of property for the purpose of golf and enjoyment, then you've got it. Yeah. In order for it to be a complement of the site and not just dropped in there from, from somewhere else, you've just got to spend time on site and it's fun. Um, and, and that's all I've ever been taught. That's my training. Variety, Derek. He keeps saying it over and over variety and you can't do variety drawing it on a piece of paper because your brain doesn't let you do something different. It lets you, the, the plan wants to consolidate everything in, in one snapshot. And when you're out in the field, you have outside influences of sun and wind and angles and topography, and your brain allows yourself to work with those outside entities. But when you're sitting in an office, drawing on a plan, and you're trying to get it all encapsulated in one piece of paper, the, 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 the con repetition becomes so prevalent you won't get that when you're laying it out in the field, letting the outside influences help you. That's the key. That's the key. Variety. No question. No question. One of the best buckers out there in Bend, Oregon, is they dug a test hole in a fairway to see how deep the topsoil was. Rod and I happened to walk by there in the evening light, and the shadow was thrown across there. And we go, all right. Well, I know it's a test hole, but there's, your, there's a bunker <laughs> right out there at 310. You know, the wild bomber's got a, a bad place to go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Hey, hey, Tim, this is something I think about a lot. And um, I'll preface it by saying the, the, the top architects, whether it's, it's, it's Tom Doak or, or Bill Coor of our you know, current generation, they say no to a lot of projects. They turn down more. Um, I'm sure other people do now as well. It's, it's now right now the business is so hot. Everybody has to pick, gets to, you know, most people get to pick and choose kind of what they want to do. They're saying no to a lot, but just historically saying no to a project wasn't as commonplace. What, are, what is something that you wouldn't do in, in a project, a, t a particular site or something that aggravates you about design that you would um, always uh, avoid? Are there any hard rules in, in Tim Liddy design that you try to avoid or that things that just bother you that we won't see on your golf courses? It reminds me of what Alice would tell Pete or would, would say to me about Pete when Pete would come back, come back home with a project. She would turn to me and say, Pete's never found a piece of ground he didn't love. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, I mean, that's, you can see the truth in that. We, we've talked right. about that all, right. all the time. Right. I mean, the, you know, the TPCs on a small, right? Um, it didn't matter, right? The, the land didn't, he, he could work with it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, what do I, how do I answer that? You know, the top, the top level guys are turning work down. I'm, I'm definitely a mid-level mid guy and 
So I look a lot harder at projects and see to see can I make them work and can, can I make them better? Can it you know? Um, so that's always a, a tough call uh, in that I don't get the best sites or I get housing projects or um, I get you know more remodels. So uh, and I'm you know I'm going to be seventy next year. So so yeah I'm 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 becoming more selective. So I don't know how to answer. What bothers that, you but, about about design what is something that that aggravates you that when you see it somewhere else um i think what happened a lot in the 80s and 90s when pete die was doing his best work some of his best work that it influenced a lot of other architects that never really pulled it off you, you know and you've seen a lot of that and you're going oh they just didn't quite get it you know so that probably turns me off more than anything Dave, you once said something to me in a conversation that we had that that's really stuck with me. And it, it I think it actually influences the way I look at architecture in, in general. It just kind of adds a little dimension to it. And you said the one thing that, that has always kind of bothered you is when you go to a golf course and you see that they spent a lot of money just to spend a lot of money. And I'm paraphrasing you, but I think, I think we all understand the sentiment when you see a golf course where they were just you know, throwing money at things and building all kinds of things that didn't necessarily have to do with the golf. Is that something, I feel like that's a baseline for you as you go forward in, in thinking about types of projects that you would like to work on. No question. I mean, it, you said it really well. It just, nothing bothers me more than going out to a, a, a golf course project and or seeing a golf course where you feel like, because it, it was so production oriented, it, it it didn't get the maximum effort that, you know, the earth deserves. If you're, if you're blessed with two or 300 acres to build a great golf course or make the most of that ground for golf, then that's a charge. I, I guess that's where I, yeah, I grew up a bit of an agriculture. My dad was grew up on a farm in Iowa. So I just have a, a certain feeling for the land. And so when I, I think of, couple hundred acres not being get get kind of getting the quick treatment it's yeah extremely irritating and and so that's that's my answer yeah i think it still think, is yeah i think yeah. you um the one thing you can say about the work that you've done over your career and especially with corn crenshaw is that i don't think they've wasted opportunities i don't think that they've gilded any lilies they do have and you have such respect for the land you're right and they they just like Tim, you know, they really research a project to make sure that they can achieve the goals of the owner. And then they, then right away, you've got the beginning of a team. Jim, is there, are there any, what are the rules in Urbina world? Are there things that lines that you won't cross or things that, that just uh, run afoul for you? My joke is always no fountains, no waterfalls, no talking rocks, no musical cactus. <laughs> and uh, if I, if I could stay on that and on that uh, on that level of uh, stay away from that level of architecture, I'm going to be a success. <laughs> Sadly, you just eliminated about twenty percent of the golf courses in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, I I think it would be fun to be uh, charged with uh, building golf, and you're only given. Uh, 20 bunkers or 10 bunk. You, you can only place 10 bunkers out there. Mm. I think that, I think that would be a great challenge. 
or you know, you pick a number, just you know, not 120, but being frugal. I think being frugal with features. They're just not out there for eye candy to just build something to build something. What's their purpose? What are they telling the golfer? They telling you that they're drawing your eye there because it's a good place to go or not. And you get to the greens, are they punishing you for your vanity? <laughs> you know what? And they, and they all have purpose. And for me, Derek, if I had a chance to have just a clean slate, open land, you know, not great topography like I've been blessed to work on, but a, a, a flattish ground, maybe something like talking stick or, or, or something like that, I would do an intersecting routing that would use features on other holes to be a part of the hole itself. And I've always dreamed of doing that. I hope I get that chance someday. And that plays on the frugal part of what Dave talks about using a bunker on another hole to be a part of the feature of the hole I'm playing. And I learned that by working on McKenzie golf courses that he was, you know, always tying a hole into another hole. And I'd like to have that chance to do that, that, that frugal 10 or 20 or 30 bunkers that can be used on other parts of the golf course that interact with another hole, even though it's not a part of, and I like that idea. It's a great idea. Make it a simple walk. And for me, for me and Tim may think differently than me, but for me, making a 66, 6,700-yard walking golf course, 6,300-yard walking golf course, let those 72 and 78 and 8,000-yard golf courses be designed by somebody else. My entertainment value would be 63 to 65, 6,600 yards, and it'd be interactive between each other. And that's some of Dave's and some of the stuff that I've learned reading and that's if I didn't get that wonderful piece of property that uh, people dream about. You know, Jim, yeah. what you just described sounds a lot like a golf course you and I saw together and, and Dave's worked on his brambles. And now we, I don't know how it's turning out. I don't know if those intersecting holes will, will right. see anything like that, but it's a, it's a beautiful, subtle piece of ground. We've talked about it on the podcast before yes. and would yes. have a potential to ach- achieve what you're talking about to some degree. And I have a feeling they're not. It's not going to be you know, over bunkered, and it's not going to be dolled up in any way. No, and you know, you Dave says it right. You don't need it. Although I've restored golf courses that have 120 bunkers, the San Francisco Golf Club, it had a lot of bunkers. It was built on a sound on a sand hill, so it was easy to dig out and create these bunkers. But when you're trying to ease the cost of construction. Uh, ease the cost of the the cost of rising cost of sand. You don't need a lot of bunkers. You don't need 120 bunkers. You could do the same thing as Dave said, the challenge of taking 20 or 30 bunkers and making them impactful. And and that's the fun part of, of, of golf design, how to uh, achieve a goal uh, with a, with a challenge. And sometimes the challenge is self-induced and sometimes the challenge is brought on by the owner or the land that's given to you. And, that's the fun part for me. Sure, I can move millions of cubic yards of dirt. I did it in my sleep when I worked for Pete and when I worked for Perry. Just move it, move it, move it, move it, fix it, fix it, move it. And that's what I did. But how about the challenge of not moving a million cubic yards? What would I do then? Tim, though, on the other side, is from you, from your artistic perspective, is there something to be also said for not, certainly not waste, certainly not just throwing money in a project, but something to be said for a level of ornamentation on a golf course, something that is an, is an artistic rendering of a landscape that's pleasing to the eye that maybe doesn't serve uh, necessarily a strategic purpose? Absolutely. Um, you know, Brambles reminds me of James Duncan. When I was fortunate enough to do that 
the job in Scotland, James came over and, and did some work with us. And, and we had so much fun talking about what you're asking me, the search for beauty. You know, what is that search? What is that constant search for beauty? Um, you know, Kai Golby worked on that job. To me, those were precursors of working with Dave Axlin. They, you know, they're all just very nice people, talented people, and great skill set. And that's what we'd sit around and talk about is, yeah, strategy. We, you know, we talk about strategy, but um, I'm, I'm searching for beauty all the time. No question. Is it in the eye of the beholder? <laughs> I mean, not to, not to be I like, not so. to be, you know, no, flipping, but no. Uh, I think there's there's definitely a foundation yes. of Western art that has uh, a foundation to it in terms of how things are organized to your eye and how your eye travels in a painting or around the site. Uh, I mean, I can talk about that for hours, but yes, there is definitely that. And uh, uh, from building a bunker to you know looking at the entire. Green complex, uh, no question. I, I think so. And Dave and I, Dave has a great eye as well. Um, I'll, I'll never forget we had a conversation about the sixth hole at at uh, Harrison Lake, par three, sits in the hill, and we, we had put three bunkers around it, and uh, it didn't quite fit. And I couldn't, I couldn't pick up why I didn't like it. And Dave came, and I said, Dave, what, what's what, what do you think of this? You know, I just threw it out there. He, he had been gone for a couple of weeks and he came back and he goes, I love it. You've got three bunkers. They're all pointing at the green, at the target. They're taking your eye to the target, but they're all doing it in different angles, which was not appeasing to my eye. But as soon as he said that, I got it. You know, it's like, yeah, you're right. Now I see it. And there's a bunker in the front of the approach that has no business being there except to be an artistic framework of of taking your eye to the target did you leave the hole yeah yeah it's, it's there today interesting dave do you remember that i do yeah Our you will elaborate on that i do i think that that bunker short right down there in the hill is all artistic it's one of those short bunkers that it reminds me of, you know, bunkers, you know, committees can fill in bunkers and they can do a lot of things, but contour stands the test of time. And that's why that's one of the last tools in the toolbox, I think, as a, a golf course architect, at least for me, you know, bunkers were flashy and visual and all those things, but simple golf contour, uh, you know, it's not flashy, uh, uh but, uh, the con the contour out there is is terrific, right there on six. Derek, I'm gonna start writing down all these Dave Axley quotes, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little booklet, and I'm gonna walk around <laughs> and say contours stand the test of time. Don't talk to me about bunkers. And so, <laughs> Dave Axley quote, I love it. Thank you, I love it. Well, like most things, I probably heard it from somebody else. <laughs> It wasn't said in that voice, though. That really carries through. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good—that's a good place to leave the conversation. Um, it was really kind of enlightening, and I gotta—I gotta bounce some, you know, my own questions off you guys. That was—that was entertaining and informative, and um, it's just great. You know, we're in this age when that is again going back to like a, a 
a generation, two generations, three generations ago, the type of collaboration that exists in the field right now, whether it's between, you know, uh, Tim Liddy and Dave Axland or a, or a Dave Axland and, and a, a Keith Reb on a project or Jim Urbina and all the people that you've worked with. It's, it's really Whatever. fundamental to the way golf courses are turning out into the process of building golf courses. And as we've discovered today, or maybe rediscovered, it, it, there is a history of it going back into the 19-teens and 1920s with McKenzie and, and Hunter and even when he worked in Australia with Alex Russell and Mick Morecambe and developing those concepts and other architects. And I think we lost a lot of that you know, in the middle of the uh, 20th century when we had the big design firms and it was more uh, top-down organization. But it's coming; it's back now and, and there's such a, a there's such a lifeblood in golf right now because people are willing to work together. They travel. Their DNA is in so many different places. Dave Axlin's DNA is, is in so many wonderful places. We're working with different people, all the shapers that we have in the game right now. Jim Rubina, you've worked in so many places with people. So it's just, um, it's a really great time in golf design that I, I think we're doing uh, the right thing by paying attention to it and acknowledging it. It's really having an impact in the way golf courses are turning out and how people are enjoying golf courses and opening their eyes to different types of uh, products in, in the golf world. Well said, Derek. Well said. Thank you. Well said. Thank you, Derek. Yeah, thanks, Derek. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Yeah. It's great talking to you, Jim. Again. Thanks, Dave. I'll see yeah. you somewhere soon. Sounds good. <laughs> I hope to see yeah, all you guys great. somewhere soon. Jim, we should we need to make it out to Harrison Lakes in Indiana. Let's do that this I agree. summer. We'll go. We'll go. Uh, we'll go to um, Harrison Hills and see where Pete got his real ideals from. <laughs> he didn't go to Scotland. He went to Harrison Hills. <laughs> no disrespect. He's a salesman. <laughs> he was an insurance salesman. He, yeah, he could. He could get you to buy it. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Tim. It was my pleasure to listen. Thanks, guys. Great Thanks, talking to you guys. See you. Okay. Jim, as soon as we ended that podcast, you texted me and said, "Like, is this not so cool or what?" And I was like, "Yes." I mean, I could. I was like, I could do this all day. This this charges me up to talk to people like Tim Liddy and Dave Axlin and you um, all day. This is what I live for. This is so good. I hope everybody enjoyed listening to that. One of the th- one of my takeaways from this is listening to you know, and I, I think Tim probably gets tired of being associated with Pete Dye, and yet. You know, he's here in large part because of Pete Dye. It's in his blood. He can't help it. But he's, yeah. but nobody, few people speak more uh, definitively on Pete's artistry as an artist, not just a builder of golf courses, but the way he layers things. And, and he said something that was interesting. He said, Pete, you know, changed and he experimented, but then he got to this point when he was repetitive, but he was because that's what he liked. He was an artist who had worked so much of his career and finally got, was getting the product out of him that he always knew was in there. I'm paraphrasing to say it exactly yes, that way, yes, but I think yes. that was the message he got. And then once he found that thing through experimentation and, and through a lot of development, he, he liked it. He kept doing it. And, and TPC Sawgrass, once a year we get to go see what I think is, is his Pete Dye's uh, probably uh, arguably his greatest golf course for, for uh, what it meant for engineering, creativity, artistically, visually. It hit all of these, these, these things. It's all wrapped up. It's the culmination of so much of his thought. And it's so, such a strong design. And if you listen to Tim, it is 
pretty much probably right where Pete wanted it, and he had a chance to go back over over the time and make tweaks, and they did a lot of uh, infrastructure and drainage and grassing, but the fundamentals of the golf course didn't change. How important is it that we as in, in the, who write about golf design in your profession, how important is it that we do everything we can to preserve uh, uh, that input? Pete dies specifically to use him as an example because we we bend over backwards now putting golf courses back to how Alistair McKenzie built it and how yeah. Seth Rayner built it. We I mean yeah. there's a whole industry that that restores golf courses. How important is it that that we honor the the culmination of Pete Dye's view of these golf courses because already there's only 17 holes there left at TPC that Pete Dye built. Well, I don't want to see any more get lost. Right. Great question. And 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 for me, somebody who studies golden age of architecture, if I was to be called in to restore a Pete Dye golf course, and I'm sure I'll get some of those calls as Tim Liddy has, I would say to your I would say to the committee, do you really invoke the the spirit of, of Mr. Pete Dye? Is, was his strategies important to you? Uh, is the mission statement that uh, Pete Dye should be honored, no matter what of, of technology, no matter what of, 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 of who plays the golf course, is that important to you? And I, I can't believe you asked this question because I have a quote from the Spirit of St. Andrews by Alistair McKenzie. I hope you don't mind me reading this. Oh, I'd love to hear it. And you know how important this is to me. And I quote the spirit of St. Andrews. It is of vital importance to avoid anything that tends to make the game simple and stereotyped. On the contrary, every endeavor should be made to increase its strategy, variety, mystery, charm, and elusiveness so that we shall never get bored with it, but continue to pursue it with increasing zest, as many of the old stalwarts of St. Andrews do for the remainder of our lives, end quote. How's that for spot on about what we should endeavor, what we should make sure that we don't lose? It's not stereotype. It's strategy, variety, mystery, charm. Elusiveness. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? That's how I think. We And when we talk about PDI golf courses, was it the best it could be when he did it and he tinkered with it just ever so slightly? We have to make sure that we preserve some of that so that it doesn't become stereotype and it doesn't lose its variety. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, we're, we're getting into that. And I think we've talked about this before. We're getting into this era when a lot of golf courses that were built in the eighties and nineties are going to need, you know, like any golf course, they're going to need work. How yeah. far does that work go? And if anybody, you know, Pete Dye, in my estimation, was the closest thing that, that golf architecture has to Picasso for a lot of reasons. Not only just the kind of the, the way the courses look like the paintings and the development over different periods of time and the groundbreaking-ness uh, of the art through the in the time that it was made, how influential it was to other artists who came after. I mean, he's, he's, our, he's Pablo Picasso. We don't go in and screw around messing up Pablo's work. <laughs> and he was the McKenzie of the modern era. He was the McDonald of the modern era. And, you know, we revere their work. And so you have to be careful. Was every Pete Dye, PB Dye, Perry Dye golf course at the ultimate level of design? That's for people to decide, Derek. They could decide and break them apart however they want. 
But the preservation of some of these Pete Dye golf courses, I think is very important because they will lose their mystery and charm. I don't want them to lose their mystery and charm. No. You know, the one other thing that we, that I've been thinking about as we were talking and I'm thinking about now is, and it goes, ties back into our conversation before we get, we brought uh, Dave and Tim on is about collaboration and the process of building a golf course and, and how it requires so many different people. And we're in this kind of wonderful age right now where there are so many talented people and they, they work for different projects. They travel around. I'm talking about shapers in particular, yes, uh, design yes. associates and the work is, I think everybody can judge it for themselves, but I think most would agree that the work is really spectacular. It's really creative. Uh, the golf courses look and play as, as well as, as anything that's ever been built. But I wonder if in specializing so much in doing one thing, it's going to prevent or has prevented some of these really talented people from, from being looked at not as a shaper or an associate, but as a designer or an architect. Dave Axland, that was kind of part of his, his uh, career. You know, he became known as, it was, it was Corn Crenshaw and they had these, these two, I think, you know, uh, Bruce Hepner talked about this. He said, like, we heard that they had these, like, two wizards, Axland and Proctor. What were those? These guys that made it happen, especially in the early days of Corn Crenshaw. And Dave Axland got really perceived as the guy that makes the trains runs, the, the, the associate who can, who's great shaping, great bunker builder, all these things. But neither he nor Dan Proctor necessarily, in, except for a few occasions at Wild Horse and Bayside, were considered architects. And they kind of got put in this box. And it's only now, you know, a little, little later in his career that Dave is being looked at the way he always should have been as a designer. But it's taken him a long time. And it just it just makes me think that I wonder if, if a lot of, I, I worry that a lot of, the, there's a lot of pigeonholing that goes on in design. And that, yes. you know, if, if somebody goes into a, whether it's a club or a, or a, a new development, a new course and interviews for a job, if, if somewhere in the developer, the committee's mind, they're thinking, well, this person's not a designer, they're a shaper. And I just wonder, you know, is that, 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 that's nature of the game, I suppose, but it's something that you have to deal with because as you become more specialized and and good at something, it's almost like, I wonder if another door is closing somewhere else. And Derek, I, I, I liken it to, to actors and actresses in the movie theaters and the movies and, and TV shows that once you're typecast as a certain character, a bad guy or a good guy, a villain or a, a, or a hero, that you're always going to be the hero and you're always going to be the villain and you're going to be the funny guy and you can't be the serious guy. And so you're typecast and so you can never get a chance to, to show all of your capabilities in acting. And, and same with artwork. Luckily, they didn't pigeonhole artwork. They didn't make you paint the same painting over and over and over. Uh, you got to do something different. But in architecture, when I listened, Derek, to Dave talking about four feet and four inches, what owner who, who knows about architecture would even understand that I'd gone from the four feet to the four inches and I'm spending burning daylight hours to make sure you're going to get the most creative and the biggest variety of a golf course that you can get because I'm sitting here doing it. And you're right about that. Did did Dave become so uh, entrenched in in, in, uh, making other people 
uh, which I know they're very appreciative, make other people, you know, uh, uh, whether he was working at Prairie Dunes, uh, restoring the Prairie Dunes golf course, you know, making it the best he could be. Did he not have, will he get the chance? Will he become later on in his life the guy that you should have talked about 10 years or 20 years ago interviewing him for an architecture job more often than just Wild Horse, as you know, is a very cool golf course. I sympathize with Dave, and I sympathize with Tim Liddy. He's always going to be the Pete Dye guy. You know, he's always going to, well, what, let's let's get Tim Liddy because, you know, he he – he walked these golf courses with Pete, yeah, so yeah. he knows what Pete's thinking. Here, paint what, this. About all the, what about all the other things that Tim Liddy knows? What about all the other things that Dave Axel knows? And all those other people out there, Derek, you bring up a great point. Don't be typecast. Give these guys a chance. Right. Well, it, like Dave said, you know, what's the most important thing to him? Being open-minded. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think I would hope that clubs and developers are open-minded. Yeah, it's great to go get the the hot guy of the moment, and and that's yeah. you're going to probably get a good product. But like, there's so much more out there. There's so yes. many more. I would love to think that everybody's open minded. I think we might be getting into that a little bit. Just and, and I'll bring up one example. I wrote about this recently, and I visited them at the the old Barnwell product uh, project in Aiken, South Carolina. The developer owner uh, Nick Schreiber. He could have. I mean, it's a great property. He could have signed up probably any number of people, but he, he went with uh, Brian Schneider and Blake Conant, uh, two, you know, Tom Doak associate and a, a, a shaper. I don't mean to, and I say that with respect. Blake's one of the best in the business. But it, but he had, Nick's had people tell him, what are you doing? Don't hire these guys. You've got to go get, you know, Gil Hans or, or somebody else. And he said, no, I mean, I, I trust these guys. This is their arguably their first shot at getting a great property and, and making it work. And that's, that's trust. That's open-mindedness. And, you know, I have no doubt that the golf course is going to be great. And hopefully it spurs other developers to think a little more open-mindedly as well. Very good point, Derek. And I think to myself about if I was the owner, if I had, if I had to spend four or five, six, seven million, whatever the budget is uh, to create this, this uh, this idea that I want in, in, in golf architecture to present an 18-hole golf course. But, Derek, I will tell you that I would rather – and you're going to say, well, Jim, you're, <laughs> you are on the other side, so you're going to lean this way. But think about this, Derek. Would you rather have a person that's going to burn every hour, every minute of the day making the best product possible, as I said, or somebody that's going to draw a plan uh, and, and and that has a marquee name uh, and and is going to come in on his jet, land, point, talk about a couple things, and then and then take off to the next site like they used to do in the seventies and eighties. Boom, 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 and go around the, the country. You know, I would take I would take Dave Axlin and his four foot four inch mentality. Uh, uh, attack of the golf course rather than somebody that draw me a, drew me a pretty plan and said, you know, hire a contractor and go build it. Yes, it's going to be good, but could it be the best? And that's a good, good point. point, on your point. Could, it, could it be the best? Have you taken that, you know, 300, 400 acres of earth, of rare earth, and as Dave said, and turn it into something that's the best it, it could be. And, you know, and if I were looking at a plan and I, I met you or I met Dave and I and, and I'm looking big picture and you're looking at those four inches instead of the four feet, 
I'm going to say, I want that guy. That yeah. that's the per, that's what I need to make this golf course the best. I, everybody can see the big picture. Everybody can see how the holes are pretty. Yeah. I yeah. want the guy that can build it and can make the most out of it. And you don't think that Brian Snyder and Blake are go, not going to put in every ounce of energy they no, can. They're going to live on golf. site. They're going to live. They're going to live there, and they're going to show people they they can do it. And that's how you get the chance. And I think to myself. How did McKenzie get his chance? Well, he drew in a magazine that the, the, the ideal hole in the magazine, he got his chance. And McDonald went overseas and came back and said, I'm the smartest guy in the world. You better pay attention to me. And Donald Ross said, you know, my swing is pretty damn good. And I came from Dornick, so I know how to build golf courses. And I'll convince you of that. But what about the other guys? The other guys. You know, does Dave Axlin have a pure swing that, 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 you know, you emulate on TV and think, God, this guy must know what he's doing. He could, he's a scratch golfer. No, but man, can he build and create and, and be open-minded to making the land its best possible uh, feature that it could be. You know, and this goes back if, if, if we care about this and I use we collectively or we in the sense of people that really love golf courses and yes. want to see the best golf courses being built, we would reward the golf courses that are, that are built with, with a sacrosanct respect for the land and the, the, the burning of the jet fuel to get the details right. We would reward that with our patronage and our accolades versus other golf courses that are good but aren't making the best of it and then that that would propel golf design into uh, a, a place that we're headed and we're in a really good spot right now but there's still a lot of um chumminess and and uh, people who who like golf courses because they just put as again going back to dave spend a lot of money on <laughs> making on threw a lot of money at it um, threw a lot of money at yeah it. We, and, there's and, still so much of that and that just makes it harder to for people who care to build good, good golf courses it's just one fewer opportunities and i want to ask you this derek do you think that as as the the next wave whatever you want to call it the next era the next wave the next group the next think tank of people in <laughs> golf architecture what will they bring Will they make the hands-on approach even better? Or will there be that somebody that comes along that says, my drawings are the best. If you follow my drawings, uh, you'll get the best product. I'm not sure which way it's going to go, but I tend to think that, as Tim Liddy said, as long as you have the art of critique, as long as you're willing to look at the product that you've put out there and critique your own work and be willing to, uh, to listen as he listens to Dave Axlin or other people, the, the art of critique, if you're willing to do that and not say that my product is the best, no matter what I do, you know, I'm the salesman, are golf courses even going to get better? Can they be better? That's what I'm wondering. Uh, to be, to be continued, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I should have brought this up earlier, but uh, if you go to Tim Liddy's website and look in his um, 
I'll put a, and I'll put a link to it on the show notes. But on his website, he's got some photographs of the work that they've been they've done at Harrison Lake, and Dave's bunker work in particular is really striking. It's beautiful to look at, and um, I'll encourage everybody to go take a look at that to put a visual on top of what uh, we've been talking about for the last however long. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and Derek, you and I enjoy this because it's just a it's just an extension of what we love, and we just get a chance to. To, to be a part of somebody's lives. And as you've said to me several times, when you interview people, the, the things that, that you listen to, what people are thinking about, it's emotional and, and, and it's passion. And, and whether you and I are doing it together, uh, interviewing with people or you're doing it on yourself, or I go visit a site, I went and visited Gil Hans' site, his new site, and I have a chance to watch Gil put flags in the ground and talk to me about his ideas that's interaction. And, and I just, I wish everybody could enjoy what we enjoy in a, in a, in a more personal, personal way. Beautiful. Well, let's get out of here, Jim. That was, um, we could go on cause we could literally go on for another hour. Uh, <laughs> I, and I wouldn't, I don't want to subject our listeners to that. If they've made it this far, I just no. want to like leave it as is. I want to leave with good thoughts and not wear, wear out their welcome. And we should they, probably just, they, they turned it off and they went to music, you know, who wants <laughs> I think, to hear contours stand the test of time as soon as dave and tim left i think that everybody clicked it off but so, anyway if you're still here thank you very much this was thank a joy you. it was great talking to you jim and thanks thank everybody and we'll do one of these again pretty soon thanks thank a lot. you thank you dave and tim <laughs>